Well, if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Lord willing, we're going to finish up our look at 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 7, and in the coming weeks, move on to the rest of the book. But we're going to read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and I'll invite you to stand for the reading of God's holy word. Paul writes, the saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, as I said, we're, Lord willing, finishing up our study through this passage uh, this morning that teaches us here, Paul teaches us here in this passage, the biblical qualifications for the office of overseer or elder, and that includes uh, pastors preaching, you know, who preach and teach. Those are elders. I am an elder, as well as ruling elders. Uh, and we're going to look at mainly this morning at verses six through seven, which gives Paul gives us here the final two qualifications, so to speak. I'm sure there's more that could be said, but these are the ones he lists here. And those two uh, requirements are, those qualifications are that a man must not be, in verse 6, a recent convert. In verse 7, we find out that an elder must be well thought of by outsiders. So not a recent convert and well thought of by outsiders. Now, you might have noticed as I was reading it, as you were following along, that while Paul was talking about those two last qualifications, he explicitly twice mentions the devil. Now we now we live in a very materialistic age, not just in the sense of people being all about money and possessions, but when I say materialism, that is a philosoph a philosophy, a way of looking at things that uh, denies the spiritual dimension of things and only acknowledges the things you can see and touch and feel. And so many there are in our day that would deny the existence of evil. They would deny the existence of the devil. They would mock such an idea as outdated, as something that only people from hundreds of years ago would possibly believe in or admit. And yet the scripture makes no uh, makes it plain uh, that uh, we are to believe that these things exist, including a personal uh, being known as the devil or Satan. And I think what this should do, the fact that Paul brings this up twice in, in this text, it should impress upon us uh, it should be a reminder to us to impress upon us the fact of the spiritual nature of the office of elder and deacon. The spiritual nature of the office of elder and overseer and later on even of deacon. I think it should impress upon us the vital importance of the qualifications that Paul gives us here for those offices in the church. And what that means is the, the, the church, we sometimes forget this, but the church is involved in a spiritual war of sorts. It's easy to lose sight of that. It's easy to, to, to kind of be harangued by your circumstances, to be stressed out by them, uh, and, to, and to forget that there are unseen things going on 
for good and for evil. God certainly is in charge of all the, even all those bad things. He overrules all those things for our good and works them together for our good. But we must never forget the fact that we are in a spiritual war. There's a reason that the church is always oppressed and under attack, and sometimes like today, even more openly so. The church is involved in a spiritual war. You might know that in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul makes this very explicit. He tells us that Christians must take up the whole armor of God. He says it twice. It's, it's a warfare imagery. He tells us to take up the whole armor of God that we might, quote, be able to stand against the schemes of whom? The devil. Paul talks about the devil all the time talks about Christ more, but he brings the devil up in a lot of his epistles, and it's not for without reason that he does that. You might know the scripture explicitly mentions the activity of Satan against God's church numerous times. Paul makes mention of the evil one repeatedly in his letters and epistles. I think that should, that should make us sit up and take notice. Clearly, Satan has a lot of schemes that he's constantly using against the church and the Lord doesn't want us to be ignorant of those schemes, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11. Now, Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, loves the church. He purchased it with his own blood. But the devil hates the church, and he's constantly scheming against the church and attacking it. But there could be no doubt that he takes a special interest and delight in targeting the officers of Christ's church. It's easy to forget that he targets the pastors, the elders, the deacons, and others whom God has set apart for ministry in his church. He targets missionaries. These are the ones on the front lines. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us if you think about it, if you think about things biblically. You know, all sin in the church is harmful both to the person sinning as well as to the whole body of the church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, sin and its effects has a way of spreading. Uh, one of the reasons we have church discipline in churches is because of that. But if the leaders of the church are to fall into scandal, how much more damage could the devil do with that? Think about Jesus' words to Peter himself in Luke 22, verses 31 to 32. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat. Imagine hearing that. He's saying Satan himself has got his eyes set on you for harm. And he says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. In other words, he even kind of hints that something was going to happen. That Peter was going to have some kind of a fall, which we know that he did. He says, when you have turned again, when you've repented, when you've been restored and turned around, strengthen your brothers. Now, why Peter? It's probably obvious. He was one of the original 12 disciples. He's one of the 12 apostles. And you might know he's kind of one of the inner circles, so to speak. Peter, James, and John were kind of on Jesus' inner circle of those 12. And so he was a target. He was a big target. And if Satan had a most wanted list, Peter was on it. There's a reason that Peter and Paul and others of the apostles were so often persecuted and harassed. Think about how frightening it would have been for Peter to hear that Satan himself knew him by name and had his sights set upon him for destruction. But how much greater was it for Peter to know that the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the Lord of glory, the great shepherd of the sheep, also knew him by name, but knew him as his own and prayed for him that his faith would not fail. 
you know, Jesus, the Bible says, intercedes for you if you're a Christian as well. And I'm sure it's for the same reasons that your faith may not fail, that you may stay in Christ and be saved. You know, Jesus actually, we know from Scripture, Jesus actually prayed for you and me. If you're a Christian this morning, Jesus prayed for you. In John chapter 17, we often call this Jesus' high priestly prayer. Some people like to call this the actual Lord's Prayer because he wasn't just teaching us to pray. The Lord himself was praying for us. Jesus prayed not that the Father would take his disciples out of the world, which we might prefer sometimes, but that he would what? Keep them from the evil one. Verse 15. Jesus talked about the devil too, didn't he? He prayed that, that, that God would keep, keep us from the evil one and sanctify them in the truth of his word, John 17, 17. In verse 20, Jesus says that he wasn't just praying for the 12. We might understand that. Well, they're the apostles. But he was praying not just for them, but for us. He says there in, in that prayer, he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who is that? He's talking about you, if you're a Christian. Those who would believe on Christ by the testimony of the apostles. Jesus prayed for you that you might be kept from the evil one and that you might be sanctified. And will God not answer Jesus' prayer? I believe he will in every way. Well, let's look at the two qualifications that Paul lists for us, for us in the text. In recent weeks, we've gone through, I think, five Sundays so far, this passage uh, and we've seen all the different qualifications that Paul lists. And we've seen that in a lot of ways, there's, there's almost one qualification that is described by the rest and explained away by the rest. And that one qualification, that main qualification is found in verse 2, where he says an elder must be, quote, above reproach or blameless. That's kind of a, a, a short way of summarizing everything else that follows in these qualifications. And Part of being blameless in some ways involves not being a recent convert. Not that it's sinful to be a recent convert, but Paul says that that's a very important thing, that we not be a recent convert. To be an elder, he says in verse 6, he, the elder, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now that word translated recent convert, you could, you could literally transliterate it, you know, take the Greek word and just anglicize it, so to speak, as neophyte. We get the word neophyte from this Greek word. A neophyte is what? A beginner, someone who doesn't know much, maybe. It has the idea of something being newly planted. It's kind of a, it's kind of a, a horticultural term, something being newly planted. You know, think of it like this. Picture it. Now, you, if you know me, you know I don't have a green thumb. I kill every plant I try to take care of. Uh, but picture it like a sapling, like a, like a young tree you plant in the backyard when you, when you first move into a place. You plant a sapling in your, in your backyard. Well, you know, those first years, you don't go out to it and look for fruit. It, it's a sapling. It's not ready for that yet. You don't, you don't tie a tire swing to a sapling. You're going to kill it. You're going to break its back, right? It's a sapling. You have to wait for it to grow to maturity for those things. One day it might be a mighty oak tree, but... Early on, you're, all you're going to do is damage it by putting it in a position it shouldn't be in or trying to use it for something it's not ready for. Well, if a man, if an elder is a recent convert, why would that be a problem? How could there be sufficient time to test and observe his character or even his ability to teach? It's probably for the same kinds of reasons that later in this exact same letter, 
In 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul says to Timothy, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. What, what's he talking about? You might know if you were here years ago when I was ordained, the elders of the church came up and laid hands on me. It's one of the things you do as you set apart someone for ministry as an elder or as a deacon. You lay hands on them. That's, that's, that's where we get the practice from, is from this kind of passage in the scripture. So he's saying, don't lay hands on anybody hastily. Don't be in a rush. Don't be in a hurry. That is good advice from the scriptures for us and a good commandment from the scripture for us to, to follow. And so the lesson for us here is that we shouldn't be in a hurry in choosing and ordaining men to office in the church, whether that be a pastor or a ruling elder or a deacon. That's especially so when it comes to a man who is new to the faith. Now, what are the reasons Paul gives us here for that admonition against ordaining a recent convert? He says, if we're to ordain such a man, what? He may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The King James Version puts it kind of poetically and eloquently when it says, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he what? Fall into the condemnation of the devil. Proverbs 16, 18, you might be familiar with this. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before what? A fall. We sometimes sort of abbreviate it and say pride goeth before a fall. Same, same difference, right? Pride goes before destruction. To ordain a man to office in the church too soon exposes him to the temptation to pride and, and conceit of thinking that he's more important or more gifted or more established than he actually is. Now, that there's a certain honor that goes along with, or at least there should be, and I believe there often is, there's a certain honor that goes along with being an officer in God's church, and rightly so. It reminds me of my time in the U.S. Navy. You know, I was an enlisted man when I was in. I, I was a, just a working man, right? Uh, but when an officer would enter the room, whether it was on ship or on shore, one of us who were enlisted, we would call out, attention on deck. And if you were sitting in your chair or doing something else, what were you supposed to do? You were to pop tall and snap to attention. Now, sometimes the officers, if they knew you well, if they were, if they were nice, they knew you were busy, they would walk into the room and wave you, know, wave you back or say, at ease or as you were, and then you could stay doing what you're doing. But you were to show deference and respect to the, and, and honor to the officers who walked into the room. Whether they were a lieutenant or the commanding officer, you would say attention on deck and show them honor. I think in some ways uh, we should treat the officers in God's church with a similar honor, respect, and even godly submission as the Bible instructs us to do, for their work is difficult. And as Paul says in these verses, there is a sense in which the devil himself has his sights set on them. I mean, he'll, he wants to get at any believer, but I think in some ways he can do more damage, and so he sets his sights on the elders of the church and the deacons as well. And I think this means that it's all the more important that we be careful and not ordain a man to office before he's ready. Not everyone can handle it. For some, it makes the ego kind of spiral out of control. Talk, Paul talks about him being puffed up, and pride goes before destruction. Now, Paul, when he speaks of a man falling into, quote, the condemnation of the devil, what's he talking about? He's not saying he'll, he'll get prideful and the devil will condemn him. That's not the devil's job or his place. What he's saying is he'll share in a similar fall and condemnation that the devil did. 
What was the devil's sin? It was pride. He was an angel, and yet he fell because of his pride. He wanted to take God's place. He wanted to be like God. And so he's saying pride could cause a man to fall into the similar kind of judgment as the devil did, a fall that was caused by pride, by arrogance. Notice that Paul's concern here is not just for the health of the church in general, as important as that is, but also for the good of the recent convert. We're not doing them any favors by rushing them into office. We are not to put a man into such a position because of the inherent danger involved both to him as well as to the church. It's been said that ministry is a dangerous calling, and that is absolutely true. So we need to treat it as such and be careful and not be in a hurry. Well, the second and last qualification Paul lists for us in our text uh, in this passage in verse 7, he says that an elder must have a good reputation with those who are outside of the church. Look at verse 7. He says, moreover, he, the elder, must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. It literally says, more literally says, if I can say that uh, five times real fast, is that he must have a good testimony from outsiders. We, you know, we talk about having a good testimony. The way the, the way the text is worded has the idea of the testimony being given from the outsiders. They would speak well of him and of his profession of, of faith. Now, an elder must have a godly reputation within the church for sure. Nobody would ordain a man or, or seek to do so if he didn't, but he must also be well thought of by those outside of it. Why, why do you think that is? You know, I always say if we were writing the Bible, we probably wouldn't have thought to put that in there. We'd say, oh, who cares about the outsiders? They don't like Jesus anyway. They don't understand the church. So what does it matter what they think? Um, but why, why does it matter? You know, you might say to yourself, Somebody from outside of the church, well, they're just going to slander a believer anyway. Now, if you, if you ask any random unbeliever, they're just going to talk bad about the person. So why even ask them? But Paul tells us uh, that their testimony matters, that they must have a good reputation or good testimony among those who are outside of the church. Now, why is that? One of the things this is for is to protect the church from hypocrites. You know, very often... Too, too often, frankly, a man or woman can learn to play the part in church, but only show their true colors around his unbelieving neighbors. And if a man has a bad reputation among his unbelieving neighbors and co-workers and, uh, and such, such a man is not fit to be an elder. Now, again, as with all these qualifications we've been looking at, uh, these are things that every Christian should consider. Every one of us who professes to believe in Jesus Christ should look at our lives, should examine our lives regarding these things. And, and so I'll ask you this morning, what is your reputation among unbelievers? People you work with, your neighbors, classmates, friends at school, whatever it may be, what is your testimony among them? If your neighbor, your coworker, your classmate, or someone else were to hear that you're a Christian, would they be surprised? Would they be taken back by that? Or would they say, oh, yeah, I can see that now? Would they say, what? The same, the same person I know is a Christian? I don't, is that, what would they say if someone told them? If you were to tell them you're a Christian, what would they say? Would they find that your life and conversation among them is fitting for someone who professes to be a believer in Christ? Or, or is your life 
in such a different way when you're away from the church on Sundays that those outside the church would have difficulty believing that you're a Christian, that you're truly a believer in Jesus Christ. Every one of us who professes faith in Jesus Christ should sincerely look at ourselves in these things. We should be looking at what our, what our reputation is among unbelievers. Would you be ashamed to admit to any of them that you're a Christian because you know that your conduct and conversation among them have not been fitting for a follower of Christ? Something we should all examine. Years ago, a good friend of mine who's a dear brother in the Lord, uh, he used to have, and I don't see him very often these days, these things, but on the back of his car, he used to have a fish symbol. Anybody ever have one of those? I'll explain that later, why that's a Christian symbol, if you want me to explain it. But uh, it's, a, it's an acronym. The, the letters that made up the, the Greek word for fish, ichthus, spelled something like Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. It was like shorthand. And so it's kind of a, a subtle symbol of the Christian faith. You know, it's, I, I heard somewhere, I don't know if this is true. I'll explain it anyway. That, uh, that persecuted Christians used to draw half of the symbol in the dirt or the sand and the other Christian was supposed to get the hint and draw the other half. And it was kind of the inside sing signal to let each other know you're Christians. Well, so people would put these things on their cars as just a Christian symbol. Well, my friend uh, had one on the back of his car. And, and one day I saw his car and it was gone. And so I asked him, and I, I won't say his name, but I, I asked him, I said, hey, so-and-so, uh, rhymes with so-and-so. But I said, what, what, uh, what happened to the fish on the back of your car? And he kind of sheeple, she said, well, I, I wasn't driving. My driving isn't great. Uh, he drives, drove kind of fast. And so he was worried that it might be a bad testimony. So he took the fish off the car. And I said, name redacted, I said, why don't you just drive better? <laughs> you don't take the fish off the car. Drive in a way that's more fitting for the fish on the back of your car. Well, I guess a man's got to know his limitations, and he knew his, so he took the fish off, off his car. Um, you know, in, in the epistles, the apostle Paul repeatedly says and admonishes us to, to walk in a, in, and watch how we walk or live. I'll read a few really quickly. Ephesians 4.11 there, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called in Christ. Walk in a manner that's worthy of your calling. After that, in Colossians 1.10, he says, walk in a manner worthy. There's that phrase again. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. First Thessalonians 2.12 seems like a pattern. He says, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, when he says worthy, we can get kind of wrapped around the axle with that word. And we think, oh, we're earning something. We're trying to live a good enough life to, you know. The word worthy there means it, it fits. It means to walk in a manner that's fitting of your profession of faith. To walk in a manner that's fitting uh, of the calling with which we've been called in Christ. To walk in a manner fitting of the Lord, which is fully pleasing to him. So to walk in a manner that's worthy is to walk in a manner that's fitting. It's congruent. It, it matches together with your profession of faith, it doesn't mean that you walk in a perfect way. None of us walk in sinless perfection, not even close. Even the holiest of men, the Heidelberg tells us, have a, a small beginning of this obedience that God requires of us. But, but we're to walk in a fitting way with our profession of faith. We walk in a way that's 
not in a way that's equal to our salvation or that earns anything, but it's fitting for one who professes faith in Christ. And I think in some ways, uh, this, this final qualification that Paul mentions, I think maybe what this means is for our practice, what we should do is maybe we'll do this next time we have someone nominated for elder or deacon, we'll ask for recommendations or references, just like you do on a job and call them up and say, hey, you work with so-and-so, you live next to so-and-so, what do you think? I think that's something that we should think about and do as a church. Now, notice that Paul also gives, a, he mentions here with this last qualification, there's also a danger involved here with not having a good reputation among outsiders. He mentions the danger of, of a trap set by the devil himself. In verse 7, he says, the reason an elder must have a good reputation or a good testimony among outsiders is, quote, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now, a snare here is that that, that, that word is like for a fowler's snare, something you would catch a bird and kill a bird with. And what's the goal? What's the, what's the goal? He says disgrace, that he might not fall into disgrace and into a snare uh, of the devil. You know, there's been no shortage of scandals and disgraces in the church down through the years and I think it's probably especially true in our own day. Now, to be sure, there's no foolproof safeguard against these things. Uh, there's no way of, of foolproofing these things. But I think in many ways, these things happen because we don't take these qualifications seriously enough when we bring someone in as an elder or a deacon uh, ministering in our church. So one of the things we can do and should do, according to Scripture, is make sure we have a good reputation among those who are outside the church and again, that, as always, that should be the goal for every Christian. That should be your goal. If you're a Christian this morning, is to make sure that you have a reputation that's good among those who are outside of the church. Now, one takeaway from this, and you may think of this as selfish, and I'll admit that to be sure, but one of the things that we can take away from this is that it's very important for us to pray for our elders. Pray for me as your pastor. Pray for Rob as your as you're soon to be elder, pray for our future elders and deacons. Pray for the elders and, and pastors and deacons in other churches. Pray for, pray for us. Why? To be called to the ministry is to be called uh, and become a target for Satan's schemes and snares. I mean, he really would love to do nothing more than to cast reproach on the name of Christ by causing scandal in the leadership of any church. And elders are to be above reproach, but we are not above temptation, beyond or above temptation. So pray for your elders and your deacons. Pray for the good of the church and for the cause of the glory of God. You know, we might be tempted. I, I've had this temptation myself. Sometimes, you know, I'm a pastor, as you know, of a small church. Um, and I can barely keep your name straight as it is. So that's probably a good thing. But, you know, I know pastors. I'm, I'm a, a um, fellow pastor with others who are uh, Pastors of large churches, and I'm tempted sometimes, to be honest, I look at them and I say, well, they're fine. Look how big the church is. They must be doing great. They've probably got this thing wired. And so what do I sometimes not do? Sometimes I don't pray for them that much. I figure they don't need it. It's the little guys like me, the little, the little schlubs that need the prayer. It's like, no, they all need prayer. Big church or small church. No one's beyond the need of prayer because no one's beyond Satan's snares when it comes to these things. Now, um, I, I'm, I'm sure that none of you have those misconceptions about me. And so in some ways, I'm thankful for that. I'm sure that many of you are praying for me and others 
uh, in our church. But uh, this goes for those big, successful kinds of pastors as well. You know, people like, to, not to throw names around, but we just prayed for John MacArthur. Sometimes I think we kind of think, oh, he's fine. He's super Christian. No, he's, he puts his pants on. Maybe he jumps into both legs at one time, but he, he needs prayer just like any of us, any of you do. So pray for those big and small pastors and elders of all kinds. It, I think these things show us that uh, those men might even be more in need of prayer in those kinds of churches as well, that they might not fall into disgrace and the snare of the devil. Well, may the Lord Jesus Christ be pleased to raise up godly men from among us here in this church to serve as officers, as elders and deacons. May he work in us as we look through passages like this, that we might look for and recognize these men by by looking for these qualifications in their lives, which are the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in them, which sets them apart for the work of ministry. And may he be pleased to equip the church in this way and use us as a church for the glory of his great name, that many sinners might be brought to a saving knowledge of Christ and taught to live for and follow him. Amen. Let's, let's pray.